Well, good morning, everyone. It is, what is it, the second day of fall? Third day? And I have my flannel on today, so it is flannel season. There's a couple in there, a couple people, but uh, my name is Shaq. I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City, and I am excited to bring God's word to you this morning. This was probably the hardest one for me. If you live with me, Ruth knows, I put a lot of pressure on myself um, and had my sermon done on Wednesday. And then Thursday morning, I deleted it. And I started over. Um, I felt the Lord was leading me a different way. And Thursday morning, I got up emotional, like, what is going on Thursday? Sunday is coming, and I don't have a word. God, what is happening? So this is brand new. So uh, hopefully the Lord can speak to you through this time, and hopefully he can speak to me as well. Um, so this morning, uh, we're going to talk through a passage that is found at the end of Mark 10. We are reaching the climax of an important lesson that Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples since chapter 7. The end of chapter 10 is the healing of a blind man named Barmaeus. This story, like the healing uh, in the chapter 7 and 8, is likely related to a reoccurring blindness of the disciples. So, to properly interpret the healing of Barmaeus, we need to start from chapter 8 to gain a better sight of what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and readers about spiritual blindness and true discipleship. So if you, again, if you have your Bibles, you can go back to chapter 8. We're not going to put it on the screens, but I'll just kind of start from there. But since Jesus' first announcement of his death and resurrection in chapter 8, verse 31, Mark's portrayal of the blind disciples have taken a new turn. The disciples still do not understand. They refuse to accept what Jesus is trying to reveal to them. And the failure of the disciples is now related closely to Jesus' teaching about his coming passion. Although the, Jesus and the disciples are traveling on the same road together, they are on different paths. Jesus has chosen to suffer and give his life for others. And the disciples reject Jesus' teaching concerning the suffering son of man they are afraid of their own safety. They want to be great rather than servants. They want status and honor without suffering. So this section in Mark's gospel ends in chapter 10, verse 42 to 45, with Jesus' powerful plea to his disciples to join him on his way. He tells them this, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. When whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. For even a son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Jesus is informing his disciples about the plan and goal of the Messiah, but their ability to have true sight is still to be determined. So let's pray and we'll jump into the story of Barmaeus um, and hopefully the Lord can speak to us through this. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus, we need you. In a crazy and busy world, God, we need you to speak to us this morning. So as we look at this word, the story, would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our minds? Would you speak to our stories and how we can see ourselves in this? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So beginning at the 46th verse, Mark tells his readers this. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Barmaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Barmaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Barmaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see and Jesus said to him, go for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. On the outskirts of Jericho, the last stop before arriving in Jerusalem, we encounter a poor, blind beggar sitting beside the way. Now beggars often waited alongside the road near cities because this was where they had the most contact with people. This was especially a busy road during the weeks leading up to Passover as there would be more travelers than normal. So usually disabled in a way, beggars were, were unable to work for a living. Medical help was not available for their problems. And people tended to ignore their commitment to the care for the needy. So, with the crowd continuing to increase as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem, the beggar saw this as an opportunity to gather the most money. You guys ever have those moments when you're leaving a stiller game or some event and the, there's beggars just waiting, like, this is the moment. We can get like $500 or $400 by all these people. So, put that in your mind that this is happening. So as you can imagine, Jesus and this crowd approaching Jerusalem, he will have to pass Barmaeus' posts. And since he cannot see, the heirs of Barmaeus was much more aware of the sounds. He knew that these sounds were different. The sounds of a large crowd signal someone of importance approaching. So he must have asked, what's all this excitement about, disturbance about? What's going on? Who's this person? And soon as he heard who's passing by, what does he do? He shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now for us in Garden City, we like to be quiet, right? We love silence, right? So if someone was to come in here and shout, Jesus, have mercy on me, who would freak out? Most of us, right? We'll be like, oh, keep that one quiet, sing, and 
Worship the Lord in silence. Have mercy on me. He's screaming. See, Jesus was on this one way to the trip, to the cross. This would be his last time passing by the blind beggar's location in Jericho. Perhaps Barmaeus sensed his great urgency and realized he must seek Jesus now or never. This was his only opportunity, his only chance. It might be significant that only here, just before going down to Jerusalem, that Jesus is called son of David. A reference to a military figure like the original King David. But this son of David, Borromeus cries out to, is one who comes with mercy, not wrath. This son of David that he cries out to will soon enter, enter Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, we don't know what motivated him to say this. Maybe he figured, I only got one chance to get Jesus' attention. I cannot call out Jesus of Nazareth because it might get lost in the crowd. So I'm going to use another name to get his attention. Perhaps he heard on the streets or at the gateway, at the city gates, at what people, as people came and left talking about Jesus from Nazareth. Maybe he heard something. Or perhaps he heard in his local synagogue the redemptive words from the prophet Isaiah when Jesus said he will preach the good news to the poor, comfort the brokenhearted, and, and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be set free. Maybe he heard something good about Jesus. This was his only opportunity. Again, I want to reiterate that, that saying, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. He shouts. He groans for Jesus' attention. Just imagine that. In the middle of so many voices during the community time. And we have someone new to our church and saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. This imagery reminds me of my early Christian experience when a Pentecostal pastor shouting in my ear, urging me to call out to Jesus, cry out for Jesus. I remember him when I was 14 years old, screaming in my ear, cry out for Jesus, Shaq, cry. I, wasn't, I didn't grow up Pentecostal, but this was this one moment I had. I'm like, this guy is weird. <laughs> but I did cry out for Jesus. There were tears eventually came down my face, and I felt the presence of the, God, the Lord on my heart that day. So in verse 48 indicates this, that, that the reaction of the crowd suggests that this marginalized member of the society who makes no major contribution to what Jesus is doing to keep quiet. They were not commending him for using another name for Jesus. They rebuked him. And Mark tells us it was not just one person, but there were many rebukers, including probably the disciples too, who told him to be quiet. Shut your mouth. Be quiet. 
Now, Barabbas, not, not Barabbas, I keep mixing the name up. I kept going over the week, like, this is Barabbas, but it's Barmaeus. He does not hide his face in his coat and comply with his rebukers and say, okay, I'll, I'll leave him alone. But he persisted. He shouted even louder. Now, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> You're screaming and screeching. He's loud and screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the next verse was so heartwarming when I saw this. While Jesus is walking, the word says, when Jesus heard him, he stopped. It's like he's walking and his father is like, stop right here. He's like, wait. So when Jesus heard him, he stopped. Knowing, knowing what's about to take place for Jesus, the anticipation of the Passover, seeing friends and family, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sharing his last meal with his disciples and about to experience a gruesome death, when Jesus heard him, he stopped. He stopped. Unrush. Intentional time with this man here. You can imagine the disciples saying, why do we stop? Oh, this guy? He's an inconvenience to our mission. Let's get going to Jerusalem to overturn the Romans. What are we doing here? But Barmaeus was in their way. But Jesus thought otherwise. He stopped. And he heard this man. When I kept reading this next verse, I was, I was kind of laughing at this verse because Jesus said, not to Barmaeus, but to the people. He says, tell him to come to me. Tell him to come here. As you can imagine, the people saying, be quiet. And Jesus kind of looks at them and says, tell him to come here. And he's like, oh, yeah, Jesus wants you. <laughs> so Jesus uses the lips of the rebukers to bring forth this man to himself. Tell him to come here. So they called the man and says, cheer up. He said, he's, come on, he's, he's, he's calling you. He's inviting you. He's interested in you. He didn't just say, oh, never mind, you guys were talking bad about me. I'm just going to have another chance. But he acts with reckless abandon, throwing off every garment, outer garment, which he must have laid on the ground over his feet to, to collect coins. So this garment was his livelihood. But he was eager to throw it aside for Jesus and his kingdom. It was a radical faith response to the call for discipleship. He threw it away, threw it aside to come to Jesus. I want us to sit with that for just a moment. We have a lot of things, so much stuff as Americans. We, don't, we can't really think about this because we're not blind. We can't think about this because we have everything we need. But unlike the rich man, Barmaeus is landless. He disa he's disabled. He's a victim of a system, not an inheritor. Unlike the disciples, he dared not to approach Jesus directly with his requests. 
Bartimaeus' request is not after eternal real estate or the best seats in the new kingdom, but after mercy, despite those who would silence him. While the rich man walked away from the call of discipleship, Bartimaeus gives up everything and responds to the call to discipleship with eagerness and hope. He gave it up. But now in verse 51, Mark intentionally compares Bartimaeus' petition with that of the disciples. In Mark chapter 10, verse 36, there's this moment where James and John comes to Jesus and say, oh, we want you to do us a favor. And Jesus is like, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want to sit on your right and your left in glory. We want to be your people. We want to be your main bros. Jesus asked the same question to Barmaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Barmaeus gives the right answer. He says, master, teacher, rabbi, I just want to see again. Master, I want to see more deeply. Master, I just want to see the way things really are. Help me see. I'll say something I think Dennis could have said last week. Jesus' invitation to the rich man was to make reparations. The rich man refused, and he doesn't go on the way with Jesus. And Jesus cannot grant the disciples' request because it's based on desires of status and privilege. But Jesus can help the beggar because Barmaeus knows he is blind. He knows he's blind. So Jesus says to Barmaeus, go. That word go is the same charge he gives to the rich young ruler. It's the same charge he gives to all disciples in the Great Commission, right? We know that phrase. We kind of um, memorize it, right? He says go. It's a present command of start going and keep going for the rest of your life. Again, Jesus says to Barmaeus, go for your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. His faith was instrumental in his healing. This had a double meaning. On one level, he was saved physically so he can see. But on a deeper level, his faith has saved him spiritually. Mark tells us instantly the man could see. Instantly he could see. This miracle is not a progressive healing of the blind man in Perseda where he spits on his hand and he tells him, what can you see? And he says, I see a tree. And then he actually has his whole, heal, uh, his sight restored. But this is instant healing, instantaneous healing. But Barmaeus doesn't go away. He doesn't say, thank you, Jesus, and go back to Jericho and works his life. But he follows Jesus to Jerusalem. I interpret that as he becomes a disciple of Jesus. He becomes an unspoken disciple of Jesus, a minority 
you know, uh, disciple of Jesus. This is what Jesus has been trying to communicate all along to his disciples. The blind has become last. Well, the first has become last. And the, land, and the last first. I'm going to say it again. This is what Jesus has been trying to communicate all along to his disciples. The first has become last. And the last first. Now, how might this story challenge, encourage us as we are on our way to the new Jerusalem? I thought carefully about this question. I'm like, okay, how can I answer this my own self and how can I present this to other people? So with my time spending, um, with my time reading and thinking about this story, I think it's very easy for us to look at the disciples and wonder why, or wonder how could they be so blind. They're with Jesus, like in bodily form, they are with Jesus, and witness his incredible sea calming, uh, water walking, deep, uh, dead raising power. But we often find ourselves in the same boat with the disciples. We too, like the disciples, can misunderstand the nature of Jesus' messiahship. We too, like the disciples, can can be preoccupied with competing for cultural power and influence in a half-sided manner. Like Peter, we can question the will of God, suggesting a path that is much easier without sacrifice and suffering. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah while being ashamed of the gospel out of fear, of rejection, or worse. Like James and John, we might want a crown without a cross, rejecting a road marked with suffering. We can focus on our desires to be like Jesus instead of seeing the implications for discipleship in these living parables. Or we can be like the blind beggar. Bartimaeus, who presents a model of a more faithful form of discipleship, one who gives us the permission to declare our cries for mercy by naming our blindness before God, a God who not only hears, stops, responds, and calls, but a God who can still create true disciples from those who are un comprehending minds and hardened hearts. God can still call us even though we are blind. So we have this assuring promise in this story that our spiritual blindness can be healed. We have a promise that our spiritual blindness would not last forever. Our teacher, Jesus, our Messiah, Jesus, makes that known to us. But we must be honest with the conditions of our current site and the damage it can bring to the path of our discipleship. We have to be honest about the things that we are blind to. See, our interpretation of Jesus' call of discipleship is not a matter of intellectual competence. Church 
attendance and programs, theological superiority, doctrinal correctness, religious piety, political tribalism, Christian niceness. The list goes on and on and on. But the essence of discipleship is a matter of whether or not we really want to see. I'm going to say it again. The essence, the core of discipleship is a matter of whether or not we really want to see. To see the things of our fracture and weary world more clearly, without denial and, and misbelief. To see the matters of oppression, economic and educational disparities, uncivil wars, and to look at a restored world of universal peace, perfect shalom, generosity, equity, and love established under the kingship of Yahweh. So my question to you and to myself is do we really want to see? Do you really, do we really want Jesus to heal our blindness so we can move into true discipleship? If the answer is yes, if our answer is yes, then it comes at a cost. But it's worth it. It comes at a cost. And if our answer is no, then I would challenge you with a simple why, why not? If your answer is yes, but I don't know where to start, then it begins with this. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see again. I want to see more clearly. I want to see more deeply. I want to see things the way they really are. Do you want to see? Barmaeus is that example for us, seeing the things that really are, because we get it wrong. I get it wrong. I'm going to put this aside. I'll pray before I share this, but I've been here for a year now, and to be honest with all of you, that I do not know a lot about Jesus. I'm just like you. I'm pretending to know a lot about Jesus. And as, a, as a, a pastor who is just starting to do this, I get weary. I get overwhelmed with not having the right answers. I get in my mind about, is this theologically point that I'm making is true? But I, when I read this story, it was so, the, the burden just re released off me of like, I can bring my spiritual blindness. I can bring my questions, I can bring my cries before God and say, I don't know, but I want to see again. And I'm offering that to you, that it is okay not to know everything about God. It is okay to let mystery be mystery. It is okay to let the unknown to be unknown. So wherever you are in your life, if you leave here and forget this, it is okay to cry for mercy. 
it's okay to ask God to help me see again. So I'm going to pray, and um, we're going to do communion, but think about that. What are the ways that you're, you're blind to the things about God? What are the ways where you act like the disciples and want status and power and influence, eternal real estate? Think about those things. So let's pray. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. God, there are so many misconceptions we believe about you and we get your name so wrong. God, we even, sometimes we, we, we move on our own paths and we want what we want and we, we call out to you based on the things that we need. But God, we're, we're, we're asking, we're pleading with you to help us see again. We're declaring our, our, bl- our blindness to you. We're declaring the way that we have wounded our neighbor, wounded our spouses, wounded our children by the ways that we perceive you in the world. So have mercy on us. Have mercy, God. Have mercy on our hearts. Lead us, lead us to a place where we can follow your ways. Lead us to a path where we can be careful to serve you, to think about you. God, we are so sorry. I'm sorry. Help us, God. Help us, help us. Help us see again. We long to be your disciples. We long to love you. We long to be with you. But help us see again. Amen.